It's so good to have you all here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Chase Sizemore. I'm one of the volunteers that helps out here on Tuesday night. Y'all may see me play bass for the band. You may have seen me running around, or you may even remember from the last time I spoke. So uh, David asked me to speak again. So tonight we're going to be continuing in the series of bad advice. And as he mentioned, the advice we're going to be going over tonight is only God can judge me. So I feel like we all have that one story. I don't know about for y'all, but for me for sure, we all have that one story or that one moment in your life where you're just hanging out with your friends, everything's going great, and then so one of your friends comes up with the idea and says, hey, why don't we do this thing? Because it sounds like a great idea. And then it turns out to be an absolutely terrible idea about like an hour later. I don't know if, if y'all haven't had that, that's great. Your friends are probably a little less ratchet than my friends were growing up, but I have a lot of those stories. A lot of y'all... Uh, actually served at camp this year, so I was thinking about that, and I remember one time in particular when I was back in Roanoke, me and my friends would always go to this camp called Camp Eagle. We went there every single year. My friends always hit that camp up. It was the greatest thing ever, and it was also the place where I came to know the Lord as my Savior, so it holds a little bit of a special place in my heart. So each year they would split up the camp in between two sides. They would have the blue team and then the red team, so it was like 75 people versus 75 people, and they would have every game had points to it. Every Bible verse you memorized had points to it. And basically, the goal of 11-year-old me was to do as much of that stuff as possible, not because I loved Jesus at the time, but because I wanted to win the camp week. 11-year-old me thought that was very important, and also did all my friends. We were all very competitive, so it was, uh, it was the first year I had actually went there, and we had finished the game that finished close to midnight, so then we're walking back to the cabins. The leader of the camp says, hey, just so y'all know, there's some big chance for points at 5.30 tomorrow morning. It's called the Polar Plunge, and he gave us the outline for it. So basically, like the layout of the camp was you had all these uh, cabins up towards the top, and you would hike down this hill, and about a half mile from all that was this creek that would run through, and they had this massive slide going into the creek. And it was like, all right, at 5.30, you get up, you go down there, you hike down there, and then you slide into the water. And every time you slide into the water, you get points. For like an 11-year-old me, I'm like, this is the easiest thing ever. Got this in the bag. Points going to get racked up. It's great, right? But then I'm like, oh, that's early. I'm tired. But then my friend comes to me. He's like, dude, we have to do this. We have no other option other than to do this. We have to win the camp week. We can get up early. We can hike down there. And we can do this for our team. And at the time, I was like, you know what? He's right. I thought, and then the other thought, which was probably the more prevalent thought in my brain, was that I had to impress my camp crush at the time, because also apparently like plunging into super cold water at 5.30 in the morning was somehow going to impress a girl at 11 years old. That's just, that's just how it works. And see, that was the big loophole that we had kind of forgotten about in all of it. We had our counselors and our counselors and trainings be like, this is the dumbest idea. You will get sick. You shouldn't do it. But we're like, no, nah, it's going to be great because of... We can win and we can do all this stuff. So the water at Camp Eagle is a whopping 50 degrees Fahrenheit at the warmest. And when it's like 90 degrees in summer, you're like, that's the best thing ever. But when it's overcast and 70 degrees in the morning, it doesn't feel too good. So, so regardless, me and my friends, we all rocked up. We went down there. We're like, we're going to do this. 
And then about two days later, we got the worst colds we had ever had in our life. We did not win the camp week, and I did not get the number of my camp crush. So it was overall an astounding failure. But see, sometimes that's kind of what happens with bad advice. It takes a thought that is true, like we could have won the camp week. We could have done that. But then it just leaves out some truth or it gets distorted just so slightly to what we want it to be. I think that statement is especially true with what we're going to talk about tonight with Only God Can Judge Me. But before we dig into detail about that, I want you all to bow your heads and pray with me for tonight. Dear Lord, we're just so thankful for the time that we have just to come to you, Father, just to... uh, to open up your word and to read into what you have to say about this topic, Father. I pray that uh, you continue to bless tonight, Father. Uh, work through, continue to work through the music and work through this sermon, Father. Uh, let me step out of the way, God, so that way you may step in and speak the words that you need to have spoken tonight. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. So only God can judge me. Uh, it's a common phrase that I'm sure we have either heard or we may have even used at some point throughout our life, even if it's not specifically us saying the words, only God can judge me. I'm sure there are some thoughts and actions that we've had and expressed in our lives that can kind of dictate or mimic that kind of thought process. So we're going to analyze this phrase, break it down into three main points, and those points are going to come up on screen now for y'all. The first thing is going to be the meaning that is biblically true. The second thing is the meaning that the world has for it. And then the third thing is the effect of this statement in our lives. So starting with the meaning that is biblically true, uh, the main text that we're going to be looking at tonight is in 1 Corinthians. So go ahead and flip or tap your way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 3, and we're going to read verses 3 and 4. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's okay. The verses should be on screen for y'all. So starting in verse 3. But with me is the very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So as I did some study and did some research into this, this is the most uh, clear-cut example uh, in Scripture that I can find where God gives, and the Bible teaches of the idea and the phrase that only God can judge me. It's important, though, to know that Paul, who is writing his letter to the church of Corinth at the time, that's what this letter was for, it was his first letter to that church, is that this is a direct reteaching of what we see in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. So he took what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount and then paraphrased and said, this is what this means to the church of Corinth. And so I just read that, and y'all are like, cool, this is the shortest sermon ever. Get the music back up here. We'll be out of here for half-price apps at Chili's in no time. This is going to be great. But at least a few people laughed at that. See, David, some people do like Chili's. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, come on, give it up for Chili's. I've been waiting all week to do that, man. But as we look at that passage of Scripture, you know, as we start to break it down a little bit more, you have to think that his judgment is the only thing that determines our eternity. His decision on how we steward it and what we did with our lives determines whether we spend eternity with him in heaven or whether we have separation from God in hell. And for us as Christians, it's comforting to know that God is perfect, God is just, and God is the perfect one to do that for us. So... (coughs) Sorry. 
when you think about it, he doesn't play favorites. You know, God doesn't care about where your social standing was in high school. He doesn't care what your max bench is. He doesn't care how good you were on a debate team or what you did in college. He doesn't care about any of that stuff. And for me, that I don't know about for y'all, but for me, that's like a peace and a comfort to know that. If you look in uh, Psalms uh, chapter 33, verse 5, it says, He loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of his steadfast, the steadfast love of the Lord. And if you look again in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17, it says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So at this point, you may be asking the question as to, okay, so it says he can judge. It says he's the one that's doing it. So why is he able to judge us in the first place, you know? Why is he capable of doing it or being involved with it in the first place? So to better understand, I think, the reasons for God being able to judge us, we have to look at the attributes and the works of God to kind of analyze that. And I think the first thing is that God is omniscient. And that word omniscient means that God knows all that we have ever thought and ever done, all that we are currently thinking and doing, and all that we will ever do and ever think. It basically means that like his presence and his being spans the scope of time in our lives. And that's like a really like heavy kind of concept to think about, but it's what the Bible teaches. And if we look at uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So even the sins that we commit in secret, the sins that we've done in our past, the sins that we're doing now that nobody knows about, and the stuff that we will do that we haven't even thought about doing. He knows. And he's going to judge us for that. Second, God is impartial. He has no bias and cannot be swayed one way or the other. Romans chapter 2 verse 11 simply says, For there is no partiality with God. And this is the closing verse for a passage of scripture talking about God's judgment. When you look at the start of Romans chapter 2, it does nothing but go into detail about God's judgment and how he judges. So that is like the closing phrase that it wants you to remember in all of that. And the third thing I think we have to keep in mind is that God is unchanging. If we look again in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 this time, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that not only means that God knows all that we did, all that we're doing, and all that we are going to do, in addition to his impartial nature, none of those things are going to change. You know, we hear stories about corrupt judges and corrupt politicians and all that, and it's because we, we view them as corrupt and we see that the corruption because of their changing ways. They come out and say one thing, enough money comes their way, they change their mind. They say, we're going to pass this kind of judgment. Something happens for a political stance and things change. That's how it works. But with God, there is none of that. And I don't know about for y'all, but that sounds like a perfect judge to me. Sounds like someone who understands fully every detail of everything and will never change no matter what. Now, I know I've kind of probably painted like a little bit nicer picture of the advice that only God can judge because of all those good things, those good attributes of God's probably God's like, yeah, that's all great things. But here's the catch, though. We have to keep the context 
of what was intended in the passages of Scripture that we read. Because we can read it one way and completely lose the context of what God has for us in it. So I want you all to pay attention. It's just three simple words. Context is key. Context is key. If you don't believe me, I'll give you a little example. So let's say I'm just out about in the lobby doing service stuff on Tuesday night. And then I see two people and I'm like, you know what? I want to go talk to them and get to know them. So as I start to walk up to these two guys, one of them starts, I hear one of them and he's talking to the other guy. He says, man, it was crazy when I started to cut him open. There was blood and all this infection and pus everywhere. It spilled onto the floor. It was just a crazy, crazy day. I don't know what the first three thoughts are in your mind, but I know what they are in mine if I heard that. One is I know who the next serial killer documentary is going to be on Netflix, and I'm not okay with it. The second is I know how fast I'm going to be charging out of the building. We're going to set some world records there. And the third I'm thinking is of all places you're going to say that, why are you going to say and talk about something like this in church? This makes no sense to me. And honestly, when you think about the statement, just that statement, it's a little on the creepy side. Unless your name is Kelsey Lewis and you like blood and guts and all that stuff. (laughs) And if your name's not Kelsey Lewis and you're still like, yeah, that statement's totally okay. We need to have a conversation. (laughs) Good Lord. (laughs) So now, now that statement by itself does sound bad. But then I go ahead and I approach the guy and I start talking to him. And then I find out that the guy's a surgeon. I found out he specializes in tumors of cancer. When I talked to him about it, he says that he was doing surgery on a guy that was his age, that's got a wife and two kids, and that his odds of surviving the surgery aren't very good. You know, your first thought is, man, this dude's crazy. This is a weird thing to be saying. But then he turns completely into someone that's like we view as a hero now. He slayed hours and hours to try to save this person's life so that way he can live the rest of his life for his family, for his kids. But you see, that statement is true with this, or the idea of that statement is true with a piece of bad advice. Without the context, we can take it and use it and distort it and think of it however we want to, however incorrect it can be. We have to search his word to find out the context for that scripture. Uh, Jesus displays the same idea in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. So the, the backstory for this is that this is when Jesus was out in the desert. He had fasted for 40 days, and Satan comes to him and then tries to tempt him to get him to fall. Starting in uh, verse 5, it says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So you see this idea of taking things out of context goes all the way back to biblical times. It was something that Satan used so often when talking to people. He would just dabble just a little bit of truth, just enough in there to where we can distort it and turn it into whatever we want it to be. And let's be honest, if we think we hear a statement that's from God, we're probably not going to question it. If we, someone's like, hey, you can believe this because it says this, without any other questioning, we're probably liable to believe it. 
probable to think that that's right. So now uh, I want us to go back. I want us to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And instead of reading just those two verses, I want us to read the full beginning portion of this. So starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. So verse 2 states that the stewards are to be found faithful. God's agreeing with me on this point. You can hear it. So it says that the stewards are to be found faithful. So before you get into all the rest of that, that's kind of like, I guess you would say, is the stipulation. That's the thought process. You have to go into this thinking. And if you're like, I don't know what a steward is, let's talk about it for a second. A steward was a servant uh, who was in charge of something for his master. So it could be something like finances. It could be um, people that was in charge of that worked in fields. It could be livestock. It could be money. It could be anything that the master said, you are in charge of this thing. And the sole purpose of the steward was to grow it as much as possible to not only do right by himself and do what he was supposed to do as a steward, but also to bring glory and honor to his master. So we're like, okay, but like we don't have to like work out in fields and do all that. I guess like the modern day term you would think of it is an employee, right? Because as an employee, you're hired by a company, you are given wages to then do the job to the best of your ability, not only so you can progress and you can do and earn what you are supposed to, also so the company can get better. That's the whole point of being an employee. And uh, I remember when I was in high school and college, I used to work for Kroger. So for those of you that worked at Kroger, I understand your pain. I've been there. I felt it on an emotional level, okay? And if you've ever worked at any grocery store or retail work, there are three things you know very well. The first thing is customers suck. Like I think we can all probably think that that statement kind of like holds true. Because even though you're not responsible for ordering any of the stock, you're not responsible for the cleanliness of the bathrooms, you're not responsible for any of that stuff, your sole job is to check out items at the, at the counter and bag groceries. Someone named Karen is going to go up to you and say, the bathrooms aren't clean, you don't have what I want, you don't have this, you're not doing this right. And they're going to ask to speak to your manager because even though you've entered a thousand coupons in the time that you've worked there, you still don't understand how coupons work. That's a personal story, honestly. Anyway, so I like that's just part of it. The second thing you know from working those kind of jobs, or really any job for that matter, is that you kind of pick up the habits of the people you work with, right? So if all the people are doing a job this way, then you're like, okay, so there's a reason everyone's doing it this way, so let me do it that way. Or if when your boss kind of steps out of a meeting and everyone just starts joking about the boss and saying, like, ah, oh, he's trash, he's no good at this, he's no good at that. 
odds are we're probably going to join in on that because we, odds are we probably think the same thing. Not saying we should be saying the same things, but the way our mind works, we want to fit in. You know, we're creatures that need community. We're people that need community. So when we see everyone else following in one thing, it's like, okay, let me just follow along this little trail real quick. And the third thing you probably know is that you can tell who cares about their job. Because you know the person that's constantly hitting up Twitter, taking 40-minute breaks when he only gets like a 10-minute break and all that stuff, probably doesn't care about his job. You know that the people that are always up front talking to other cashiers and doing all that other stuff, they probably don't care about their jobs because they're not doing what they need to. And now when you think back to the passage and think back to stewardship, we are stewards of Christ. That's what this passage is talking about, that we are the stewards of Christ. We have to, so even though we have to deal with difficult people, even though we know we're doing things the right way, the world is still going to view us as wrong or too conservative and say, you're not doing this right. You're not thinking this way correctly. But you still have to stand for what's right. And it's hard to go against the grain of what the world does or wants because we just want to fit in. We want to be a part of the life that we're seeing on social media, the things that we're kind of idolizing. Like, I want to be like that. I want to live that lifestyle. So we start to compromise. We compromise maybe our take on alcohol, on drugs, sexuality, whatever it is. We start to compromise a little bit in those areas. Because at the end of the day, only God, God can judge us, right? But the, the harsh truth of this all is that when you tell yourself that only God can judge you, the rest of the world can look at you and pass a judgment. Now, I know that sounds weird, but just think about it. We are Christians. We are called to this. We are called to the idea that only God can judge us. The rest of the world doesn't care. The rest of the world doesn't have to follow our standards. The rest of the world can look at us and be like, oh, you know, oh that guy Chase, the guy that's constantly bad-mouthing people at work, constantly um, missing his shifts, constantly doing this, constantly doing that. Yeah, he's being a pretty terrible example for a Christian. He's... I'm more Christ-like than he is. He doesn't get it. We are called to minister to the world around us. In the book of Matthew, Jesus calls us to be the light of the earth. And my question for myself and for everyone here is, how are we going to be the light if we only say only God can judge us as we actively go against him? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the majority of the people using the phrase are struggling with something. And I could be wrong in that, but every time I've heard it or talked to people with about it, it tends to be true. It could be an addiction they're struggling with, a moral belief, or anything that's just easier to excuse than to fight. Easier to forget and pass over than try to conquer it. Because let's be honest with each other. We like sin. We sit in our sin. We are comfortable with our sin. We can go to it whenever we want. It's always there. And it always gives us the very momentary satisfaction that we're looking for in that moment. But I want you to kind of think about it with me. Um, if you have a disease or an illness or something that's causing you problems, do you, do you just want to like pass over and just manage it? And just be like, oh, it's okay because of this, that, and the other? No. 
you want to get over it. You want to be done with it. I'm like halfway through a three-year process of going through allergy shots every single week to try to get to the point where I'm not on every allergy medication known to man right now. I want to get rid of it. I don't want it there. I don't want to deal with this every day of my life for the rest of my life. But yet we're so okay with just thinking that we can have that one little sin, that one little thing that's just for us because only God can judge me. But as we look at Scripture, we find that, yes, God is faithful to forgive us. Yes, he is just to forgive us. And he is quick to forgive us. But that can't be an excuse for us. When you look at Romans chapter 6, it says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, we're called to walk in newness of life. We're not called to hold on to the old things, the old ways and thoughts that we have. It means we repent and turn away from our sin. We can't excuse the weaknesses we have on our inability to be faithful. Our inability to be faith, a faithful steward of God falls directly on us. And only God can and will judge us. So remember, his judgment is the only thing that determines your eternity. His decision is what will either grant you new life in heaven or permanent separation from God in hell. It is comforting to us as Christians that the God we serve is perfect for this because he is gracious and merciful and wants nothing more for us than to follow after him and accept his son as our savior. We'll be judged for how we steward our faithfulness, so let's live like it. So that goes into most of the detail we have about what the, the meaning that the Bible gives for and the study of that passage of Scripture. And now we're going to switch gears and go into the meaning that the world has for it. So again, I can't speak for you all, but as for myself, I've only heard the statement made to justify something. Basically, justifying means to validate a thought, action, or idea. It's basically to make right or say like, hey, I know like this and this is good even though I have this thing over here. But that's fine because of the two things I just said. Like those are good things, this is bad, but this outweighs the bad, right? And I want you, y'all write this down and really think about it. There is danger in self-justification. There is danger in self-justification. And honestly, I can't think of a better example of this than myself, okay? I, I work in healthcare. I'm a radiation therapist. So what that means is I uh, work with cancer patients. I help do their treatments. And some of these patients I have for two, three, four months, there are some patients that come back to us constantly because they're always fighting their illness. And I've seen probably at this point, even though I've been in uh, healthcare about two years. I've seen probably for the better part of a year of my life, I've seen these patients. So you get to know your patients very well, and sometimes they like to surprise you with stuff. Like sometimes they'll give a gift card, or my personal favorite thing is they bring food. Okay? So 
Now, with most things, especially if it's something that's like moderately healthy, I can be like, I'll just take a little bit, I'll be fine. But you best believe, if someone's bringing Krispy Kreme donuts hot and ready, your boy's throwing down. Okay, literally, if I, I can, I'm like a bloodhound when it comes to Krispy Kreme donuts. Like someone like cracks open a box, I'm just like, six count over there. Like, I just ha- I have a problem with it, Okay. I'll literally grab the box of donuts like I'm Smeagol, take it back and be like, the precious. Back to the treatment room. I'll be sitting over there. I'll eat like three-fourths of a box. My coworkers will walk in and be like, Chase, why did you eat just seven donuts? You look like Smeagol covered in like freaking powder. It's not a good look. Like you're in a diabetic donut coma and I don't know what to do to help you. And I'm like, it's fine, guys, it's fine. I, I rocked climbed for a couple hours yesterday, and then I'll, I'll run again tomorrow. It'll be fine. So I use the fact that I was healthy yesterday. I'll be healthy tomorrow to justify the fact that I ate enough donuts for the Duggards. Like, it's not okay. <laughs> but when you think about it, that's justification, like to a T. It's taking the good things we do and supporting And like using it to overshadow the bad things that we do. And I want to have a quick heart to heart here with everyone that is a born again believer in Christ. So if you haven't heard much about the Bible or don't believe it or aren't even sure where you stand, then um, we're glad to have you. We really are. We're so glad and so thankful that you're here tonight. Me and the other people of LI would love to get to know you and get to know your story. Uh, Me and a team of people will be here at the front after the end of service. If you want to come up and talk about anything that's going on or just want to get to know some people, we'd love to talk with you, okay? But for this next part, I want to talk to just the people who claim to be Christians. So Christians, aren't we the absolute best people at justifying our faults? Like, we as Christians think that, you know, that's a very non-Christian thing to think. You know, we understand God's judgment. We understand his love, his mercy, his wrath. We understand all those points. So we never think like that, right? We never have those thoughts. Because, you know, when you're driving down the road and you're talking to your friend on the phone about a missionary trip that you're getting ready to go on, and then grandma's in front of you driving and you start to cuss out grandma because she's going 45 and a 70 on the interstate, Then you pass grandma and you're like, wow, it's really someone that is like that old that they should not be driving. And then you get annoyed at the family of the people that let the girl drive because you're like, why did you let your freaking elderly grandmother start driving on the road like this? She doesn't understand where the gas pedal is. She needs to not drive. All the while you have someone else on the phone as you go off the handle on someone. Or what about like thinking of another thought? Don't you love to talk to your coworkers about your faith? Don't you love to talk to your co- our co-workers about like how much we love God, how much we love serving God right before we go out that weekend and just have an absolute rager and party the entire time and make absolute fools and horrible examples of ourselves? Or isn't it great to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ on your campus or at your work or wherever you're at and then go around and try to sleep with as many people as you can in a month because you want to? Isn't it the best to post those inspirational Bible verses on your social media only to tear down and gossip about every person you don't like because they irritate you and you 
just kind of wish that they would go away and leave you alone for a bit. So if you're uncomfortable right now, it's probably because you are where I, or you are where I was when I first wrote those words. Extremely uncomfortable. A little attacked. And in my head, I immediately started trying to justify and think why I wasn't like any of the things I just said. It's such a thought that's embedded in our sin nature to, to justify things. That's such a thought that's in us. And if you don't believe me, you can look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. Throughout, there are so many examples throughout the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They give examples of how the Pharisees act simply because of what they claim is their deep, strong relationship with God. They say, like, yes, I'm close to God, so you have to do this. I can act like this. I'm better than you. I can do this. You can't do this, but I can do that thing. They use it to justify their thoughts, their ideas, and actions. And another example to look at is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And this is taken from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he's teaching to the people. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The fact of the matter is that we're good at justifying ourselves. It was the same back then as it is now. He knows what's going to happen. He knows we're too good at it. As Christians, we're too good at justifying ourselves. And honestly, that self-justification is what's kind of tearing down the reputation of our faith. We justify all of our bad thoughts, actions, and ideas that other people see and witness with the, I go to church and serve card. So now we go on to the last section, which is the effect of this phrase in our life, the effect of the phrase, only God can judge me in our life. So after all that big heaviness, what do we do with that? How do we get rid of self-justification? How do we get rid of that thought process of this phrase and the horribleness that this phrase and the context of this phrase that's being used as? How do we deal with that? And I think it takes two steps to deal with that. The first is we have to have a reality check of where we are at in life. A lot of that self-justification mentally comes from a lack of perspective. It comes from pride swelling up inside of us. It comes from us thinking we're one thing that we're not. Because in reality, we are all a bunch of sinners filled with sin that will never escape sin without the grace of of a good father and a loving savior. We put ourselves on this pedestal and this thought process that we can reason and we can level with God. But in reality, God just has us sitting in the palm of his hand and he's the only one that can judge us to whether, yes, you get to go to heaven, good and faithful servant, or depart from me, I never knew you. And then we spend an eternity separated from him. And the second thing I think that we have to think about with the phrase is we have to strive for holiness. You see, our God is a holy God. 
His, he is the very essence of holiness. Look at me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And you know, you don't achieve holiness from a sermon, either writing one or listening to one. You don't achieve holiness by standing up here and playing any of these instruments. You don't achieve holiness by serving God selfishly and out of the wrong context. You really get to the point where you honestly, and honestly, you never achieve holiness. It's an abstract thing that we as humans can never fully 100% reach. But we can strive towards it. And we can strive for it every day by mentally having the process of laying down our lives, our thoughts, our sins, our actions, and giving them all to God and say, you use me as you want to use me. Help me to strive in the mission that the church has to reach as many people as possible. Help me to strive to see your kingdom. And let me search the Bible for your wisdom. It's a daily struggle. It is a daily battle. It is a daily thought process that we all mentally as Christians have to have. We can't be passively striving for holiness. It's an active choice. And we have to treat it as such. So as the band comes forward, I want to ask you, what are you doing to shake off your sin? You know, what am I doing to stop excusing my shortcomings? What am I doing to stop making all these excuses of, of all, and justification of only God can judge me? So my small group right now is going through a back-to-basics series through the Bible. So we're going over some key, some concepts in the Bible that you think, oh, this is kind of, you know, elementary, but we're going into deep detail about it. So... To do that, I think we have to fully understand who he is. But there are certain things that we can say about God. There's so much more that we can't say, or there's so many things that he is indescribable. But there are certain things that the Bible gives us that we can't say about him. And the first thing we can say is that he is the I am. And that seems confusing, but it means that every attribute that we attach to God, he is the essence of that attribute. He is fully that thing. So for instance, when we say God is good, that does not mean that God resembles good or is sometimes good. It means that God is the pure essence of what is good. From him, all good things flow and to him, all good things should be given. He is just, that means he is the essence of justice. He is perfect in his judgment on us for all that we have done, all that we will do, and all that he knows is going on in our lives because he knows us better than we know ourselves. We can lie to ourselves all we want. We can lie to other people all day, every day if we feel like it. But there's no pulling the wool over God's eyes because he knows perfectly everything. And he is loving. That's meaning he is the pure essence of what love is. He is the creator of love and has expressed his love for me and you in such a way that no other God you can ever find in scripture has, or not in scripture, but that you can find in the world has. He died for you. He gave his life for you. God sent Jesus to this earth so that way he can die for us. 
status of love. And it's such a powerful and amazing love that he's given to us, that he's expressed to us, that we honestly just overlook so many times because of our busyness, because of our thoughts, because of our sin. And he is always faithful and just to forgive us when we ask. All we have to do is ask and he will open He will open up the heavens, reach out to us and say, I am here, I have heard your prayers, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more, good and faithful servant. But that's the thing, if we reject that love and that power and mercy of grace that God provides us, then we will be judged fairly and we will incur the judgment that comes to us. Whether we're saved or not, we're all gonna have to walk through through the door of what God's gonna do for our judgment. Oh, 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 oh,